1918. It was an explosive time. Saturday down on Market Street, nine people were killed and 40 injured. And I am lucky, I am one of the lucky ones myself, as I was near the bomb explosion. They had a preparedness parade and someone against it set a bomb in a suitcase among the crowd. Making pellets, which is very dangerous. And we had an explosion while it was there. I went outside and I could see all these pieces of wooden stuff from the explosion whirling around in the air. And I started across to get the hose because I saw fire coming down the line towards our place. And I sat on the grass in wonder, the rockets roaring into the sky. I felt secure and happy with father and mother now. So I almost died of the flu. I was 14 and a half, and it was caskets all along the road. Say World War I was uh, still right in its prime, and they were just busy day and night down here in the yard. And then, of course, right in November 11th, the armistice was signed, and then things just began to fall very quickly. But at that time, the summer I was here, you just thought this was going to go on forever, you know. From the Hagley Museum and Library, this is The Mill Race, a podcast where we explore the past through the voices of people who lived it. I'm Ben Spohn. And I'm Amherst Williams. For our first series of four episodes, we'll be looking back 100 years to an explosive moment in time, the year 1918. The nation was at war. Political movements for workers and women's suffrage were gathering steam. The world was on the brink of change. What better place to explore an explosive moment in time than at an explosives factory? Today, we think of the DuPont Company as a chemical company, but it started as an explosives company here at Hagley, on the banks of the Brandywine Creek, just outside Wilmington, Delaware. DuPont began producing explosives here in 1802. Its products, from gunpowder for shooting to the explosives that cleared land for settlement, opened pits and tunnels for mines, and paved the way for railroads, helped transform the United States in the 19th century into an industrial powerhouse. Immigrants from England, Ireland, Scotland, France, Alsace, and Italy flocked to the powder yards for jobs making black powder, as well as in construction, quarrying, masonry, carpentry, blacksmithing, machining, hauling, and more. They settled in workers' villages around the factory and raised their families, making homes along the Brandywine. Over a century later, DuPont was still making black powder on this site, but it had also built newer plants in other places. Most of the machinery at Hagley was outmoded by the turn of the century, and operations in the yards were beginning to slow down. It looked like the Brandywine Works' best days were behind it. But World War I changed things. When the conflict broke out in Europe in 1914, DuPont was making 8.5 million pounds of explosives. By the end of the war in 1918, it would be making half a billion pounds. Over the course of the war, the company sold 1.5 trillion pounds of explosives to the Allies. That's 40% of all the explosives used during the war. For the people who worked along the Brandywine, the war might mean the difference between having a job or going hungry.
But the war was still controversial. And while some Americans felt the nation needed to be prepared to enter the conflict, many were not convinced that the U.S. should get involved at all. The country was like a powder keg, ready to explode. On July 22, 1916, the city of San Francisco hosted an enormous Preparedness Day parade to rally popular support for the war. The event, organized by the Chamber of Commerce, was huge, the largest parade ever in the city. Over 50,000 marchers, over 2,000 organizations, and 52 bands. This was over 10% of the city's population just marching in the parade itself. And then there were an enormous number of people watching and waving flags from the sidelines. Labor groups, especially the industrial workers of the world, strongly opposed the gathering, but were also worried that radicals might use the event to tarnish organized labor. Tensions were high. An unsigned flyer circulated throughout the city that month warning that someone might use a little direct action to show that militarism can't be forced on us without a violent protest. Well, this uh, was uh, written uh, by a girlfriend, and he says, I received your letter and was glad to hear you were not killed in the ammunition factory, factory period. Everyone around here think, thinks you were killed. Someone told me that at one month ago, and it still seems to circulate. In 1915, Reefer Hackendorn's husband, Eugene, moved from San Francisco to Delaware. Though only 17, he started working as a timekeeper in the booming Brandywine works of the DuPont Company. When Hagley's staff interviewed her in 1989, Reefer read a letter he had received from a friend back west. I wrote to Emma, Emma is his sister, uh, two times, and I never got an answer. I came believing it in the end myself. When I received the letter, I cannot express in words my great relief because I thought by this time you must be molding in your graves. <laughs> Why didn't you write? Were you too bashful? I will now tell you about Frisco, Frisco News. Saturday down on Market Street, nine people were killed and 40 injured. And I am lucky, I am one of the lucky ones myself, as I was near the bomb explosion. They had a preparedness parade and someone against it set a bomb in a suitcase among the crowd on Stewart and Market. The city now offers $17,000 for the person that catches the same Catches this. I think it's man. They have about 10 persons all locked up and just for the same crime until the judge decides. Every bum or man that was in jail, they think he put the suitcase there. But I think that they caught the right one now. A boy 19 years old. He lives right next door to college. To the college. Well, to the college, yes. To college. She has two college to the college. Why didn't I know that? I would have gotten the $17,000. The papers are just full of that outrage. The headlines read, Prepare! Message of San Francisco spoken by 50,000. And Missile of Death scatters mangled forms in street. These were gruesomely familiar scenes, unfortunately, for people who worked in the powder yards. But on the streets of an American city... Explosions were marking the lives of two people, a continent apart. Every time I pass your house on Geneva, I think of you all. The name of the place where you have lived is Gaul. 
dull enough. Oh, that's meaning Delaware. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That's right, in Delaware. And you must be pretty dull, too. <laughs> but Eugene's work in the powder yards was anything but dull. As DuPont ramped up production for the war, it expanded its operations, building new plants across the country to produce the new, smokeless powder that was eclipsing black powder on the battlefield. Compared to these new factories, the black powder facilities at DuPont's original Brandywine Works were old and outdated. Artifacts of the 19th century. Stone buildings, turbines running on water power from the river, roll mills built decades earlier. But the economics of the wartime emergency meant that for at least a little while longer, people like Eugene would keep their jobs. And people who had never made explosives before would find new opportunities there. I am Lucas Clawson. I am the Hagley historian. With the, the factory here on the Brandywine, that, the World War I ends up being the last gasp for the black powder factory. The, the, the sun was setting on the Brandywine works in, in 1917. And part of what kept this factory alive is that even with smokeless powder and high-tech explosives, you still need black powder to make things like fuses. So you can still use black powder in a big way. Uh, it's just that, you know, as, as a product, it was on the decline when World War I started, and the massive wartime orders are what helped keep the Brandywine works afloat. Before America entered the conflict in April of 1917, Manpower shortages were affecting the Brandywine Works. Once the United States got involved with World War I, they reinstitute the draft. So a lot of, of white men get pulled immediately into the military, ones who weren't already in the U.S. National Guard. So you've uh, got in Delaware to, to take an even bigger picture on this too, that uh, in 1916, the National Guard throughout the United States got called up to go to the border with Mexico whenever Pancho Villa made a raid into Columbus, New Mexico in March 1916, uh, President Wilson's response was to call up 110,000 National Guardmen and send them to the border with Mexico. So the 1st Delaware Regiment got called up. So these guys spent the better part of a year in Deming, New Mexico. So a lot of people throughout Newcastle County uh, ended up going to the border. So they, they got home in 1917, spent about a month home, and then got called right back up to go into World War One. So a lot of these guys were, were gone for a while, you know, so they were gone from the, the middle of 1916 all the way up until when some of them got back in 1919. So you see that throughout the United States, you know, where a lot of these guys are just gone for a while, so who are you going to have replace them? No, I was making pellets. You were making pellets. Which is very dangerous. And I was in a little house about four by four, and I had a machine in there. And there was a needle in the machine, and I had to walk across the road and get a little jill powder. You know how big a jill is? No, I'm not. Very small. Very small. And it was on like a, it was a box about so big on a pole. About a foot by a foot, the box? Yeah, which yeah. could have been a little bit, maybe 14 inches. And there was only one jill of powder put in there at a time. In the box? In the box. And when one jill got empty, I had to take that jill, put it in the box, and get the other one, bring it back. And this machine compressed that powder, with, and the needle went down through the center for a fuse. I see. So a lot of the women that worked here uh, were not necessarily women who lived in the workers' communities on the Brandywine. A lot of them actually lived in downtown Wilmington. So the DuPont Company uh, got a bus where they would pick them up in Rodney Square 
bring them into the powder works, you know, have them work their shift, and then they would take them back to Rodney Square. Helen Edwards was one of the women from Wilmington who came to work in the powder yards. She came to the Brandywine out of a sense of patriotism, and also because she found her office job downtown to be a bit dull. Her new job in the powder yards was certainly a change of pace. They're very dangerous. And we had an explosion while I was there. And uh, it was in the packing house up above. And one of the girls, I can't remember her name, she could have been in this crowd. Uh, his brother was in it, he got killed. And there was hoses across this road. And we were instructed that there were fire, grab the hose and you know, start working on it. And uh, after I got myself together, it, it tore my machine up out of the floor. It was fastened to the floor. And the machine was about so high. About five feet high? Yeah. And uh, I went outside and I could see all these pieces of, of wooden stuff from the explosion whirling around in the air. And I started across to get the hose because I saw fire coming down the line towards our place. And mm -hmm. me and another girl grabbed the hose and started working on it. In the meantime, one of these pieces of four by four or two by four was heading towards me and I had a watch on and I put my arm up to ward it off. It's a wonder it didn't break my arm, but it smithered my watch, smashed my watch. Like Helen's watch, time stood still on the brandy wine. The war meant a temporary stay of execution for the powder yards, keeping demand for its products high. This was good news for the communities of workers and families that clustered along the banks of the river. These little villages had colorful names. Like Squirrel Run, Chicken Alley. Duck Street, Free Park. Also known as Flea Park. Walker's Banks. They were sustained by the work and the living the powder yards provided. A simple but good life, as Ethel Jones Hayward remembered it. In the house, we had oil lamps, no running water, and no bathroom facilities. My mother was at home all the time. She baked about 10 delicious loaves of bread twice a week. The flour barrel in the corner of the kitchen was filled to the brim every fall. Sugar came in strong cotton bags, usually five pounds in a bag. When the bag was emptied, my mother would bleach the letters off the bag and make me little handkerchiefs with skills. They were hemmed in feather sticks around the hem in blue, pink, or yellow cotton. She often embroidered them to show ease in the corner. I prized these sugar bag handkerchiefs so much. For Christmas, I would receive one or two handkerchiefs with lace around each side. These handkerchiefs were used only on Sundays. When we went sledding on Breck's Lane, speeding under the trestle bridge, Nothing gave us more joy and thrill. We would sled after school hours until dark and always came home to a nice warm supper like hot vegetable soup or ham and dried bean soup. It was always delicious and satisfying. Coffee was ground for each meal in a little coffee grinder. My dad made my mother her first potato masher from an old railroad tie. It was a common thing and well used and has felt the touch of loving hands for many years. To me, it is something replete with patience, courage, contentment, and love as it hangs as a decorative piece in my kitchen today. The solid home life of families like Ethel's supported a rich community life as well. 
Stores, taverns, churches, and schools anchored a lively social world. On the 4th of July, one of the few holidays at the Brandywine Works, the Catholic Church sponsored a picnic that it seems everyone in the villages attended. Edward B. Cheney, who grew up in Squirrel Run, even memorialized the event in verse. The good old days on Keyes' Hill. We have some swell band concerts in the we have some swell band concerts in the town where I reside. The saxophone and clarinet and trombone with a slide. But give me back the good old days when they danced on Keyes' Hill with three or four old sawbones a fiddling fit to kill. They built the white pine platform right underneath the trees. Though you swung your partners round and round, you always got the breeze. The tune of sweet Rosie O'Grady gave you a light and happy heart with after the ball was over and Annie Rooney is my sweetheart. It was a treat to watch their feet, the dancing it was real when they swung from the good old waltzes into the Irish reel. For the sons of dear old Laren from Kildare and from Cork were there to show them how to jig and prance the old cakewalk. Oh, how I loved those dear old days when on a sunny 4th of July, I sat upon an old tree stump and drank a cool red eye. When the folks all went up to the hill for a good old roaring time, and a kid could have a mighty day on a nickel or a dime. And after the big game was over, and after the big time was over, and we all went to Lamont's, where the night was rent by skyrock and beautiful flower pots, and I sat on the grass and wondered the rockets roaring into the sky, I felt secure and happy with father and mother and I. But though I've been romancing all the good old days of fun, there are no better days than the ones that just have come. And though I'd like the loved ones back up and go up on the hill, these times are filled with roses, and you can have them still. But dangers lurked on the home front as well as on the job. The influenza epidemic swept the country in 1918 and continued its ravages well after the armistice. Ethel's brother, George Washington Jones, fell ill suddenly in the midst of his paper route. And just so you know, George is a little hard to understand, so we'll do our best to help you out. So I almost died of the flu. I was, I was 14 and a half. I served papers all around the pot, and this very, very, uh, they were at the, the old woman cut the cotton. They turned it into a hospital, and I used to have to take papers down, and it was caskets all along the road. So George's route took him all around the area, and he could see the effects of the flu everywhere he went. He delivered papers to the Wilmington Country Club, which had been turned into an influenza hospital, and when he went up there, he saw the coffins of the dead lined up along the road, waiting to be buried. So when he suddenly got sick, you can imagine how scared he would have been. I came to Mr. Lamont's house. 
I come out of the kitchen and I put my papers down and put my head on the table. And the cook asked me what was the matter. I said, I'm up a sick. I said, well, I'll be all right in a minute. I said, just let me rest for a minute. Now I'll go throw the rest of my papers. He was probably mortified, falling ill right in the house of his employer, Mr. Lamont DuPont. And just then, Mrs. DuPont walked in. And she asked the cook, what is the trouble with the boy? She said, he's sick. And I looked up, I said, good evening, Mrs. DuPont. She says, you're not going to serve any more papers tonight. I'm going to call a chauffeur and send you home. So Mrs. DuPont is doing him a favor, helping him get home when he's so sick. But at the same time, she's also trying to make sure her own household doesn't get infected. I mean, here's this kid, obviously sick with the flu, nearly passed out at the table, talking to the cook who makes her food. So she sent me home. And I was sick for all during the flu, and then I took walking typhoid fever, and from walking type fever, I went into pneumonia. It all happened in the in the wintertime. So the doctor wouldn't let me go to school. So I went to work up at Mr. Alfred I did for us, the rest up through Christmas and up until summer. The flu could strike anyone. George was a model kid. He had a job, did well in school, and even played a musical instrument. His parents were proud of him. And then, all of a sudden, this awful thing happened, and he was out of school for a year, falling behind his classmates. It's difficult to imagine what that might have felt like, to have your life disrupted like that. At that point, war is disruption. That you don't, you know, you don't get companies, you know, DuPont, to make no mistake, DuPont made a lot of money off of World War I. Uh, but war is a disruption. Nonetheless, I mean, they, they realize that a war kind of disrupts the flow of raw materials in, disrupts the flow of products out, changes the nature of what you do and how you do it, changes the nature of your labor force, increases your costs, increases, you know, a lot of overhead that goes with it. Uh, so a peacetime footing at that point was always a better footing to be on. Plus, in addition to all that, you didn't have the War Industries Board once the United States got involved telling you what raw materials you could have in your possession, where you could get them from, and who you could sell things to. You know, so that's, you know, that that's how a lot of that worked out, you know, and that's part of the reason steps ahead, you know, realizing that the war was not going to last forever, you know, and so what happened, again, it's, it's always a question of what happens when it's over. You know, we know what it's like whenever there's not a war, you know, so now we've got a war, what are we going to do whenever it's done? You know, they were smart enough to realize that there's typically always an economic slump once a war is done. You know, so what can they do to keep from being caught up in that slump? But the people who worked in the powder yards, like Harvey Fell, who drove the wagons that carried loads around the factory, were not necessarily aware of what the company had planned. Say World War I was uh, still right in its prime, and they were just busy day and night down here in the yard. And then, of course, right in November 11th, the armistice was signed, and then things just began to fall very quickly. But at that time, the summer I was here, I just thought this was going to go on forever, you know. I... The war had extended the life of the Brandywine Works, but what would happen when the war ended and demand for black powder declined? 
What would be the fate of the workers who depended upon the yards? And what would happen to their families in the communities that clustered along the river banks and trolley tracks? Going about their daily lives, baking bread and hanging the wash, having a beer at the end of the day, going to school and to church, and gathering in celebration to dance and eat and watch the fireworks. Would it all go up in smoke? Next time on The Mill Race, we'll find out what life was like for the men and women who worked in the powder yards during the First World War. Why would somebody take a job in such a dangerous place? And what kind of work did they really do? What were the dangers? And how did they and their families deal with them? We hope you'll join us. The Mill Race is produced by the Hagley Museum and Library, with additional support from Margaret L. Laird, Peter Sylvia, the Brookville Fund, and contributors to the Mary Laird Sylvia Oral History Fund. Our logo was designed by Rebecca Slinger. Our music is The Zeppelin and Transit by Blue Dot Sessions, available at www.sessions.blue. This episode also featured a 1915 recording of John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever from the Library of Congress. Today's episode was written by Ben Spohn and Amos Williams and edited by Ben Spohn. It featured Hagley historian Lucas Clausen and oral history interviews with Rifa Hackendorn, Helen Edwards, Ethel Jones Hayward, Edward B. Cheney, George Washington Jones, and Harvey Fell. You can listen to their full interviews and explore the rest of the Brandywine oral history collection at www.hagley.org slash brandywineproject. To learn more about the mill race, read episode scripts, and explore related material from our collections, visit us at www.hagley.org millrace. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.